I'm excited for this morning. I'm happy to, uh, to continue here in our study in the book of Colossians. This morning, uh, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. We're just going to look at the first uh, two verses, essentially, today. And a lot of it is going to be uh, found in a lot of the same verse, which only makes sense, because if you're in two verses, how much can you really do outside of one or two verses? Um, but I just want to do a brief, and I, and I promise I mean brief when I say this, uh, overview of Colossians chapter 1. Um, again, we're, we're studying all the way through Colossians. It's taken weeks and a few months to get up to this point um, in chapter 2. But just to hit a couple of the highlights, in case you haven't been with us each week, um, in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 9, Paul is expressing his desire for the church in Colossae to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. His desire for them to be filled with this knowledge. In verse 11, his desire that they would be strengthened according to his might, not his own might of Paul, but in the might of the work of Christ and in the Spirit. In verse 14, in Christ we have redemption through his blood. In verses 15 to 20, we see that Christ is sufficient, he is preeminent, he is essentially everything. Um, in, in the following verses, we also see that he is God, the, the fullness of Godhead dwelling in him. In verse 24, we see something that seems a little counterintuitive, but Paul is rejoicing in his sufferings. These trials, all these things are coming up to him again. He's writing this as he is in prison, and yet he rejoices in his suffering. Uh, verse 28, as he's closing out the first chapter, he shows his desire to present every man perfect in Christ, a desire for spiritual maturity. And if you remember that past week, we looked at it and we even relate it to the point of um, Paul was not content with just having spiritual infants in part of the body. He was not content with a person knowing as much about God the day that they were saved as they do the day that they die. That was never the goal. It's never the way that it's intended to be. And we even relate that to thinking of a child, just an actual baby that's born, a newborn baby, an infant baby. Yes, the baby is alive. It is living and breathing and doing things and interacting. But yet, would any of us ever seek to just leave that baby all on its own? All right, now that now the baby's born, we're just going to leave it off to the side. Let it let it sit over on the floor and just see what happens. We all know what's going to happen. The baby's going to die. The baby isn't being nurtured. It's not being strengthened. It's not being cared for. Uh, it, it doesn't work in any area of life if we actually relay it in this way. So why would we tend to do this spiritually? Because what happens so often is a lot of times we get content simply uh, saying, "Hey, I'm saved. I'm good to go," and that's all I ever need to know. Um, but there's so much more, and God desires that we know more about Him. That's why He's given us the Spirit to sanctify us and to learn more about Him. Um, after last week and, and thinking about infants, and some of you guys are a lot more uh, familiar with news than I am. I have a hard time watching it often. Um, but some of you are, have been tracking a lot with what's been going on over in the UK and little baby Alfie. Um, of the baby who the parents were seeking care for the baby and the state essentially decided that they weren't um, going to be able to afford to take care of the baby so they weren't going to treat the baby anymore and they also didn't let the parents uh, take the baby elsewhere to go and get treatment. Um, simply the government said, nope, sorry, that's, we get to decide because they were under uh, the state health care so they felt they had uh, the right to supersede the right of the parent in, in caring for a child. Um, so they took I think it was on Monday or Tuesday. Some of you guys might track the story better. Um, but they took him off of, off of life support and off of the, everything that was actually keeping him alive, and, and he passed away within the last couple of days. Um, of a government being able to decide whether or not your child is going to get any treatment or to being able to decide whether your child essentially lives or dies. And again, this is a very um, 
a very humanist culture over there in the UK. It's not a, a godly uh, country some of you are very familiar with. But just understand, we're, not, we're living in a time where a government institution is going to decide whether you get to live or die, or whether your infant child gets to live or to die. Um, it's not an incredibly optimistic view that, that we can look and see what's going on here and do this. And it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing to me that, that the parents continued in this fight um, and, and were unable to. And again, it'll probably be the source of a lot more protests and conversation coming up in the future. Um, but just an incredibly disheartening thing to see a government saying, no, it's going to cost too much to take care of your baby. So we're going to withdraw any treatment and, and your baby's going to die. Um, put yourself in those positions of anyone. One, being a doctor, being the government worker that makes that decision to say, no, sorry, we don't want to pay for it, and telling that parent that you're going to, to withdraw treatment. Um, just incredible things that it is that we're seeing. And, and so when we look here in, in the book of Colossians, and again, just drawing it back in, Paul is making this incredible emphasis as he's writing to these people who, who Epaphras, their pastor, has come to them, come to him and given a report of the love that they have for another, of all these things that are going on. He's being very positive, but what he continues to do is emphasize truth. He continues to emphasize the truth of who God is, who Christ is. Christ is the hope of glory. He is the one who has created everything. He is preeminent. He is all things. He is the reason for everything that we do. Which is why, he says in verse 29, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Everything he did was a labor in pursuit of, of the gospel and presenting mature believers. So then now we get here into to chapter 2. We get to the second chapter and he's going to continue. And, and what I love about Paul is he, he never writes anything devoid of his heart. Have you noticed that? He always has some emotion. He always has, he expresses his desire. He's not writing this in a cold or a callous way. Whether it's in any amount of truth, he is always presenting his heart before it. And there's a lot that we can see uh, when we look at Paul as an example. But keeping in mind, Paul is not our end example. He's merely trying to reflect the example of Christ. And we're going to see that in these few verses. Um, but starting in verse, let's just read uh, verses 1 through 3 of, of Colossians chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. For I would that ye know what a great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this day. We do thank you that, that we have the opportunity to come here to gather together and to be uh, to be able to worship you and to praise you with one another. We thank you for this community of believers that's here. We thank you that, that, that we have been joined together and knit together in love. And we thank you for, for the incredible, mighty working of your spirit each and every day. We thank you for the grace that we experience. And we just thank you that you continue to reveal yourself to us. And we thank you for your word as we're able to, to study here in these next few moments. Uh, we ask that you would... Uh, continue to, to strengthen us today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we see Paul in verse 1 immediately jumping into one of his desires. 
It says, For I would that ye know what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, which was a neighboring church along with Hierapolis, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Now remember, Paul had never met these people. He is writing to a group of people that he has never met in his life. He knows of them because of a report. All that he knows is they're Christians, so they're brothers and sisters in Christ, they're believers, they're a church, and this man Epaphras has traveled hundreds of miles to come give me a report of the positive things that's going on, as well as a cautionary tale of what could befall these people. Paul has never seen them, and yet he's expressing his feelings towards them. For I would that ye know what a great conflict I have for you. Paul has a great conflict or a struggle for the people in Colossae. He is absolutely burdened for people that he has never once met in his life. Have you ever had an incredibly strong burden for people that you've never met? You're not totally sure why, but you know something about them, and you're seeing a story, and you see that they're a believer, and you're incredibly burdened for them. Some of you are up to date, and you track with different missionaries in foreign lands and different things that are going on, and the church being persecuted overseas. And for some reason, you are absolutely grieved and troubled, and you struggle internally with this. Because it grieves your heart, and you have never met this person in your life. You may have never seen a picture of, of them. You know nothing about them, but you know that they are part of the church, part of the body of Christ, and your heart is, you, there's a conflict, there's a struggle there. And Paul is writing, I, I, I wish that you would only know what great conflict I have for you, church in Colossae, and for them at Laodicea. He's agonizing over this, this conflict, this struggle for them. One, because he understands that he's in chains. He would like to see them, but he's not going to be able to. But also, he's understanding of the concerns that are going to be around them. Remember, there's heresies that are needing to be refuted. This is not something uh, where everything is absolutely perfect teaching. They're in a perfect little cocoon, uh, and no possible heresy was ever going to infiltrate the church. This conflict or struggle is from the word agon, which is, again, where we get agonizing. Um, this is best understood in the context of an athletic contest. And again, as someone who, who has played in a lot of athletic contests, who is big into sports, and I think that's the only thing I really understand in my life, um, I understand what this is like to agonize, to struggle, to, to persevere through different pains, different uh, even mental struggles to be able to complete the task. Um, we, we, there's stories all over the place that you can go to with this of people enduring great uh, mental fatigue, uh, physical pain, physical injury, physical harm to be able to complete their simple goal and to complete their task. Agonizing to endure through the pain and through the fatigue to finish. This is also seen in 1 Timothy chapter 6 where he's encouraging Timothy and he's, he's talking about himself in fighting the good fight, Right? agonized, to, to, to endure the conflict, to struggle, to fight the good fight of faith. But all of that being wrapped up in because you know why you are fighting. It is not a battle that is done in vain. Struggle, be, endure the conflict because you know why you are fighting. So why does Paul have such a strong feeling? Why does he have such a strong struggle for the people? Why is it that he's writing to them and saying, man, if you only knew what a struggle and a conflict I have for you, church in Colossae, and for those in Laodicea, remember, they were to read this letter to the church in Laodicea as well. Why is it that he had such a, such a care for them, such a struggle, even though he had never seen them? Well, the answer is simple. It's because Paul loves the church. Not just his church, not just the church that he helped start, 
Not just the people that he knew face to face, not just the ones whose, whose kid he may have been babysitting at some point, right? He loves the church. Overall, big C, however it is that we want to try to make a delineation of it, the entire church, Paul loved the church. He loves them because he loves the church. Well, why does Paul love the church? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, many of you are familiar, it says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. Well, how do we know that Christ loved the church? Because the rest of the verse says, and gave himself for it. Paul loved the church because, one, Christ loved the church. Two, he loved it so much that that is what it is that he died for. He died for his church. Paul is understanding of this, so he says, hey, he is looking at the example of Christ and is going, look, I don't need to have individually met every single person that's a part of the church. I love the church simply because Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. That's enough for me. You know, and it's my hope that that's enough for every single one of us here, that we love the church. You know, a couple weeks back, or I say weeks like it wasn't like six months ago, about six months ago going through this, and, and I was reading a, a quote from someone, he was saying how a lot, the culture nowadays, they, everybody, people want Christ, you, you want to understand Jesus, you want to uh, talk about the teachings of Jesus, we want to have Jesus, but we don't want any part of the church. Right? Some of you have probably heard this a lot. Well, it's just a personal relationship. I don't need the church to be a good Christian, or I don't need the church to know God. Which is fascinating, because every time that we, we when we look biblically, you look at these letters, uh, Paul was not the pastor of the church in Colossae, but yet he absolutely loved them because he loved the church. Why? Because Christ loved the church. That's the example. That's what it is that he's going to. And the quote was saying how people want the head of the church without the body. And sarcastically, I said, what good is a head without a body? Or what good is a body without a head? Anybody have any good ideas? It's nothing, right? It's not going to work too well? I think. I failed that class in high school. But, but what I love is that this understanding, as Paul is writing this, and we're, gonna, we're spending a little bit of time in looking at this because it's so important now that we understand our, our need to have a true love and affection for the church. And I don't just mean for the local body, the local assembly that you're a part of. That's absolutely entailed in that. But so much more than just the one local assembly, the meeting that happens here, this group of people that come here regularly on a Sunday or on a Wednesday, yes, you should also love one another. But even think bigger than that, the church as a whole. That also means not just in our own generation, right? Past generations, the future. Loving the church overall from beginning to end. Do you have a love for the church? Do we understand what, it, what an incredible gift the church actually is? Because, yes, we're saved as individuals. We're saved through a personal relationship with Christ, absolutely no question. But how often do we, do we seek to remain that way? We're saved as an individual and say, well, if that was good enough for, for just me and Christ for salvation, why do I need to be a part of a body? Why do I need to be part of a church? We're saved individually, but never to remain individual ever again. And that to me, and hopefully to you, is an incredibly encouraging and positive thing. That this is not, that, that God hasn't just said, hey, we're, we're, going to, we're going to work out a system where redemption and salvation is brought to you, and now you are forever going to be left alone sitting in a dark room, completely devoid of any relationships with other believers, completely apart from everything else, just you. 
Are you thankful that God has, he has given gifts to His church to build up, to encourage, to equip, to do all of these things that we see biblically? Are you thankful that you are not alone? Not many people are thankful that you're not alone. That's okay. Right? Because hopefully we're going to learn, we're going to have a love for this, because this is simply what Paul is laying out. I want you to know how great of a conflict I have for you. Why? It's because he loves them so much. He has never met them, but he loves them. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he's writing to pastors, to ministers, and he's saying, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Saying, pastors, you think that you don't have a, a job that's important? Minister of the gospel, you don't think that it's important that you take care over the church? You are the ones who are watching over the flock to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This was not as if Jesus is scrounging up uh, silver dollars to be able to pay for the church and say, is this enough money? This was not just an honest day's work. This is, this is so much more to a point where he gave up his own life Purchasing it with his own blood. Now let's take a step back. Think about anything that you've ever bought in your house. Okay? Uh, the things that you're most protective of, either one, they have incredible significant meaning to you in your heart, a family heirloom or something of a memory, or usually something that we paid the most for, right? Well, that was really expensive. I don't want anybody to touch it, especially my rotten little kids. Right? Kids are coming over to your house. Like if my kids came over to your house and you have really nice expensive things, what do you think they're going to want to go and touch? The really nice, expensive things. I don't know why, but that's what kids like, right? Many of you are familiar with this. And we're, so we're very protective of it because, and in a way, we're, we're associating the worth of that object or whatever it is with what it is that it cost us. Well, this massive thing, or for some of you, it might be a car, right? An incredibly expensive, beautiful car that you've loved, you've wanted since you were a kid, whatever. I don't want anybody to touch it. I don't want it, the road to touch it. I want it sitting in a garage, um, you know, m massaging it with a diaper to wax it, you know, doing all these little things. N no one can look at it. If you look at it too long, something's going to get dirty, so don't. You place such a high emphasis because of what it is worth to you, because of what it costs you, because of what you paid for it. How many of us have something of such great worth that we have already given up our entire life for it, to the point of shedding blood, to losing life? And so here Paul is making it very clear as he's writing here in the, uh, as we see in the book of Acts as, as they're talking and he's saying, hey, look, you are watching over something that Christ purchased with his own blood. This is incredibly serious. And so we see Paul going all the way back to the example of Christ again. Paul, we can learn things of an example from him, but please do not stop there. Continue past Paul, race past him and say, Christ is the example that Paul followed. Christ is the example that I'm going to follow. He said, if Christ loved the church, even to the point of giving his life for it, so I too will love the church and ultimately give my life for it. Paul was willing to give his life for it, and he did. He rejoiced in his own suffering because it was for the sake of the church, ultimately for the sake of Christ. And so he's pouring out his, his love for these people, and he continues as he's writing this and expressing his church, not just to the love for the church of Colossae, but also in Laodicea. And he's going to express his deep desires that they do what? Look at verse 2. That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, 
into the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. It's incredible that, that, he, that he's showing his desires and that he's not just writing with cold doctrine. He, he's pouring out his desires, his love, his affection for these people that their hearts might be comforted. Man, there's a lot of hearts that can use comforted, right? A whole lot of them. And in this simple verse, we see things that are coming as pouring out of love for people that he's never seen again, never even seen them. He probably couldn't have named a single person that was a part of this church. Not a single one of them. But that didn't matter. Because his love for the church wasn't predicated or based upon the people that were in it. Which is incredible to just stop here for a moment, right? His love for the church was not based on the people that were in it. It's not as if he said, I love the church in Colossae, because there's some really cool friends that I have that are there. Or they have really cool walls and really cool building, really good music, really good whatever. He didn't know a single person here. He hears they love God, they love each other. And he's like, man, that's a church. That's a church right there. But his love for the church wasn't predicated on the people in it. It was predicated on the Christ who died for it. Do we see that? Well, I don't love the church because they've just earned my love because they've been incredible. I love the church because Christ did. Christ is the one who died for it. Therefore, it has intrinsic, inherent value. And so he's making his desires known that their hearts might be comforted. When we talk about the heart, what do we mean? Uh, in the English, the heart is the seat of emotion, right? The heart simply reflects emotion. Even my kids understand it at this age, right? The heart means the way that I feel. It's, it's emotional. It contains everything that I'm feeling in my life. It's interesting that, that biblically, anytime it's referencing the heart, it doesn't really have anything to do with the actual organ. It's not talking about the heart which pumps the blood and, and the heart which does all these different things. And that's why when we associate the heart with emotion, we tend to say things like, I love you with all of my heart. Or um, t telling your, your fiancé, like, you have my heart. And not that I would have ever said anything like that, of course. Come on. She's laughing, yeah. Yeah, she's giggling, see? Right, because, you know, because I have her heart, see what I'm saying? Right, so the way that we understand the heart, we immediately think heart equals emotions. Heart equals feeling, and that's typically how we associate it. Well, to the Hebrew, the heart had nothing to do with emotions. The heart was completely detached from the emotional state. It was not something where if you talked about I feel in my heart, they would have looked at you like you're crazy. I have no idea what you're saying. Hebrews didn't deal with things that were abstract. It was very concrete. It was very, well, tell me what that actually means. I have no clue what it means for you to say, uh, I feel something in my heart. Well, I don't know what that means. They didn't deal with the abstract. Everything was very concrete. It was very experiential. Um, they only referred to two organs, the heart, and get this one. Probably don't hear this a ton in the church, but the other one was bowels. We're going to talk about the bowels here for a couple minutes. I want you to trust me on this. We're not going to belabor it, okay? But we're going to talk about it. I hope you trust me. My parents wouldn't trust me, and I'm, I don't think Brittany does either. So the way that we understand heart, heart equals emotions, is not how they would have understood it. They would have talked about the feelings and what it is that you feel, what it is that you experience. They would have associated and discussed this in terms of bowels. I feel it in my bowels. Not my heart, my bowels. I feel it in my gut. 
This, this idea of butterflies or anxiety or anything like that, that we would associate more, more so with feelings and being in the heart, they would have associated that to the bowels. So instead of saying, I'm anxious, therefore my heart is troubled, it would have been, oh, your bowels are troubled? There's my one joke. Okay? So I want us to see this because as he's writing this, he's talking, he's going to talk about the heart here, and we will, we'll get there in just a second. But where we associate with feelings with the heart, they associated that more with the bowels. It was experiential. Jeremiah describes this in Lamentations, uh, I think it's in chapter 2. He's seeing the death of his country, and he says, quote, Mine eyes do fail with tears, my bowels are troubled. Now again, stop for a second. What do you think he's talking about here? The way that we understand the bowels being troubled? No. Right? He was lamenting about something much more serious than this. He's seeing a city being destroyed, a city that he had care and love for, and it is being destroyed. And his, he's, he's describing this in a way that we don't temp, tend to understand, but we do if we just replaced it with heart the way that we understand it. Mine eyes do fail with tears. There's crying, there's emotion here, and my bowels are troubled because everything inside of him was in anguish. In his gut, he was troubled. The bowels were representative of the emotions, and they're responding, right? Because what do emotions do? They're, they're, they're a responder to what it is that we perceive. They see things, they respond. Jeremiah, looking upon a city being destroyed, sees how horrible it is, and he, his emotions follow as a response to what it is that he's seeing. That was two minutes on bowels. You're welcome. So then what is the heart? This is the word cardia, where we get cardiac. This is not something that, that is going to be uh, too crazy for a word study, but this is much more all-encompassing. This involves the mind of the individual. You look at a definition, you're going to get mind, character, intellect, um, will, intention. It, it encompasses the whole of a person. This is not simply, well, I just feel in my heart something, or... There's a little anxiety. I, I need my, heart's, my heart to be comforted because I just need to feel differently. The way that he's writing this and in the understanding that they would have received it, but more importantly, the way that it was intended, is that the whole of the person would be comforted, that your mind would be comforted, that your will would be comforted. You could substitute comforted here for strengthened as well. That it be strengthened. We even, in a recap of Colossians chapter 1, look at the other letters. Paul is making it clear what you think matters. The knowledge that you have matters. He prays constantly that you would increase in your knowledge. He doesn't constantly pray for your control over emotions. Now, we're going to kind of just spend a moment here, and I, I want to look at the difference of heart and not necessarily just being emotions because I think it's important that we understand this is one of the, the great downfalls of, of the charismatic movement and, and Pentecostalism where it's saying, hey, just, just feel things. You don't need to have any actual intelligence or any knowledge or anything actually associated with it. As long as you feel something, if you have a feeling of any kind, then that's the Spirit of God. Run with it. Don't think. Don't stop. You don't want to quench the Spirit now. Just Go. This is why it's come on in. We're going to start pouring out the music. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be experience. It's going to be environment. It's going to be everything that's manipulated because we don't have time for your mind to actually turn on. And this is why it's so dangerous because what is going to happen 
Well, what are you actually doing in praise and worship of God when all it is is emotion with no association of any knowledge of who he is? You're praising a God that likely doesn't actually exist. Praising and worshiping a God that completely devoid of who he actually is, that's not praise, that's not worship. And so what happens is so often we, we skip past understanding who God actually is because we just want to feel things, because it's a much more tangible thing, and we understand, well, I have a feeling this must be something that is real. But the emotions are simply a responder, whereas the heart is the intellect, the will, the knowledge of a man. This is why, biblically, we see the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. That's not an emotion, that's thought, right? He has said in his heart that's thinking internally. Our emotions should always be a response to the things that we perceive and what we know to be true. And again, please, when you hear this, because I know some of you are, think, are much more um, leaning towards emotions than I am, right? I seem emotionless at times. I promise you I'm not. I just don't convey it too well. Emotions are an incredible thing. God obviously gave us emotions, used the emotions, positives, right? Paul, when he's writing in these letters, he is absolutely conveying emotion and love for people. But under, hear, hear this point, because it's incredibly essential. It's always informed by what is true. Paul's not just wisping in the wind with his emotions, going, today I am anxious, and, and therefore I'm going to remain anxious. He says, man, I, I am anxious. I need to, to remember. I don't need to be anxious. Be anxious for nothing. When, when Paul's writing in Philippians, I feel like he's writing just as much to himself as he is to anybody else. What is it that you do in the times where your emotions tend not to be a responder, but they become the driving force? How do you overcome it? You just pile on a different emotion and hope that eventually the, the cocktail is going to balance out, or do you remind yourself of the things that are true? Man, I am so anxious. I don't, why, why do I need to be anxious? I know that God got us completely in control. He's sovereign over everything. The Bible tells me I don't need to be anxious. That's incredibly reassuring. He's writing to these people that their hearts would be comforted, that they would be strengthened. Again, continuing the understanding that you have to have the knowledge and the understanding of what it is that is divine truth. That is how we control our emotions, by filling our mind with the things that are true, because our emotions are going to respond based upon those things. Some of you have more vivid dreams than others. Um, I, I've made a joke about this before, and Brittany will laugh, and I, I doubt we're the only ones. She always gets nervous, I think, if I say anything about her. Yeah. Um, but have, you, have any of you ever had a dream? And, you know, you, obviously there's the dreams where you're falling and you wake up, boom, right at the end of like a 40, 50-foot fall. Okay? You wake up, your emotions, your heart is very, you're, you're very troubled, right? You're feeling really anxious, all these different things. You're responding to what it is that you perceive to be true. Did you actually fall? No. Well, why were you so anxious then? Because you thought it was something that was true. Has anyone here ever had a dream and you get into a conflict with somebody in your dream and you wake up and you really were upset at what that person did in your dream and you're mad at the person? You're sitting there going, I'm actually mad at this person. <laughs> yeah, good. We're not, I'm not the only one. Right? Something happens in a dream. Man, I can't believe she did that. I'm upset. Wake up the next morning and Brittany can say, hey, are you upset with me? Yeah, let me tell you what you did. <laughs> right, but how stupid is it, but you perceived it to be true and your emotions were responding to what it is that you perceived to be true. 
wasn't true at all. But your emotions are responding to that, and they ran with it. This is why it's so important that what we know to be true is important. Now imagine, let's extend this out here just for a minute. What if you remove all truth? Well, there is no such thing as true, so now your emotions are informed by what? Eh, just whatever you feel at the time. I mean, how many conflicts in your life would have simply been resolved? One, by just actually communicating and talking with a person. But um, even within marriages, just because that's an example, right? You have conflicts because a person thought you meant something this way or a person thought that this happened and it actually didn't or something didn't happen, but it did, right? And, and you can get upset. You have these emotions because you think that what you think is true is actually true. And then you, once you realize oh, that's not what you meant, or oh, you actually did that? Well, now I'm not mad, but it takes a couple minutes, doesn't it? Because everything that we know to be true is what should drive our emotions. Our emotions can't be the driving force because honestly, we can't trust them, right? Can't always trust them. Our emotions can be wrong. And so this is what we see, uh, especially within that charismatic movement of saying to start the emotions before the mind gets working. Because if the mind gets working, it's going to have to look at who God is as opposed to just, just mindless, mindless singing and mindless praise of, of something. And how quickly that turns into idolatry as well. There's a reason that, that God gives us that there's a biblical pattern for worship, right? God doesn't just say, I want you to worship me, and we're left going, okay, but, but how? What do I do? I don't know. What do I say about you? Well, the good thing is he always tells you, right? And initially, let's give you the, short, the shorthand answer. Uh, praise him for who he is. He, he tells us how to worship him, how to praise him, and he says, hey, talk about who I am. And just so you don't get crazy thinking that you have to figure it out or guess, I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to tell you what I'm like. And so the biblical pattern for worship is to praise God for who he is based upon who he says he is and who he revealed himself to be. Why do we praise God and worship him for his goodness and for his grace? Because that's what he says he is, that he is good and he is grace. Why do we praise him for being sovereign over everything? Because he has said that he is, and that's how we worship him. So then here, we, he continues on that their hearts might be comforted. This word for comforted is parakaleo, which is what we get the word paraclete, which months ago we talked about uh, the name for the Holy Spirit. This is also incredible. Again, some of you were totally fine with being left alone. Well, guess what? If you're a believer, you're not alone. One, you have the church. Two, you have the Holy Spirit. So good luck trying to get away from either one of those two things. Okay, it's not going to happen. That your hearts might be comforted or that they might be strengthened. Okay, well, how is this going to happen? Who's the strengthener of the heart? Who is the comforter? Who is it? Well, obviously, it's the Holy Spirit. It's our advocate. It's our comforter. It's the one who gives strength. It's the healer. It's the helper. It is all of these things, the Spirit that God has given to each and every believer at salvation. He, the Spirit's often forgotten, isn't it? Often kind of just pushed aside, and usually when, it, when it's brought up, it's, it's done improperly. But I want us to see in Acts chapter 9, as Paul is converted, he is strengthened immediately at salvation. In, in verse 19, it says that he was strengthened. In verse 22, he says that he, was, he increased in strength. So Paul has the conversion experience. He, he's converted. He, he's been redeemed. He has come to salvation, and he is immediately strengthened Okay, so does that mean he just started lifting a bunch of weights? He started eating better? He started actually eating meat? 
What, what was he doing here? He wasn't doing anything. The Spirit is the one that was doing this work. The Holy Spirit is the one who strengthens. But I want us to understand, and we're going back up into verse 1, and the understanding of the love for the church, although the Spirit is the one who strengthens, He uses human instruments. He uses people to strengthen you. Not just any people, but God uses the church to do this. This is one of the means that God is going to strengthen, He's going to encourage, He's going to build up His people. This is why it's so important that we can't just completely detach ourselves from other people in the church and from, from being part of the church and actually having a love for the church. Because God is using human instruments to build up and to encourage. When we looked at the different gifts, we looked at the church and what it means to be a part of a church and what are the gifts that God has given to people in His church and why. It's all for the building up. The building up of the church, the building up believers, the mutual edification, right? Gifts are not meant to remain isolated just for yourself. You have a gift of encouragement? Well, guess what? Don't just encourage yourself, hurting yourself, patting yourself on the back all the time. Encourage other people. What good is the gift of encouragement if you don't ever use it? How, how many of you are encouraged and strengthened by actually being together with other believers? Times are hard. You need to be strengthened. Where do you go? You go to the Word. You go to prayer. You go to other people in the church. This is why you can't detach yourself from it. It was never meant to be that way. Well, I'm just really having a really tough time. I don't, I don't know where I'm supposed to be. I don't know what's going on. Okay, well, here's a couple questions. When was the last time you talked to God? When was the last time you read your Bible? Not just because reading your Bible is some duty that you have to cross off, but because there's actual nurturing, there's strength, there's nourishment that comes from feasting on the Word of God. The other thing, when was the last time that you were part of a community of believers? It is really, really hard to just remain an individual Christian. It is incredibly tough. Because you're not supposed to. So often, it's a simple question of, man, what am I supposed to do? I feel like I just can't do this all on my own. I feel like I'm not strong enough on my own. And to that I would say, absolutely not. You're not strong enough on your own. You have to be joined with other people in a church. You have to have Christian fellowship, Christian community. You have to go to the Word. You have to. Because as we see all through Ephesians, and he's going to mention this here in these next couple of a couple words, not only that their hearts would be comforted, but being knit together in love. Knit together. That, that's not separate, right? Some of you do knitting. Got to keep it together, right? Knit together in love. Love is the unifying theme of all of this. Love is the, the, the tie that binds. It's going to be bringing everything together. Oh, and by the way, the, the language there, it's an aorist passive, which means it's already happened. At salvation, joining to the church, you've already been knit together in love for one another and for, for Christ, by His Spirit, for the church. Knit together in love, there's unity. And then we see in the, the closing part of, of this verse, and unto all the riches, the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. This full assurance of understanding is, is knowing truth and acting on it is going to lead to this full assurance of understanding. It's one thing to know what's true. It's completely another thing to actually act on it, right? Kids, you know you're supposed to you, you know, clean your room. Well, I know I'm supposed to. Well, did you clean your room? Nope. Yeah, but some of you guys think about your kids and give them dirty looks and things, right? It happens all the time. You know, my kids are four and three. They're finally learning how to do it. Not that they ever will, but they're learning how to do it. They know that they're supposed to do things. Whether they do it or not, that's kind of up in the air, right? 
in our own lives, we know the things that are true. We know the things that we should either be doing or we know things that are true, which should inform how we respond to situations, but we don't always, always follow through with that. Knowing truth and then acting upon it. And all of this, he's, he's pointing it back into Christ, the riches of the full assurance of understanding and to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. And speaking of Christ, in verse 3, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's incredible assurance there. And we're not left wandering and, and searching and trying to, to wonder, well, how am I ever going to have any knowledge? How am I ever going to get this wisdom? I, I have no clue how I'm supposed to live day to day, how to live in accordance with the Word of God. Where am I going to get this wisdom? Go right back to the Word. Go right back to Christ. In Him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Which is why the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. The fool can't be wise if he's denying that there is a God. Because wisdom and knowledge only comes from Him. So this morning I was encouraged though in the study of simply being able to look at Paul here and see as he's writing this of the comforting of the hearts, the strengthening of the hearts from being knit together in love and and really just appreciating what it means to be part of the church as a whole. Understanding, yes, and again, I'm as guilty of this as so many people because I tend to be an individual um, by preference, right? I tend to remain more individual at times. Again, not many things sound better than a dark closet where no one can come in and I can just sit there. Sounds great, right? There's times where, where, where you're going to want that and where that seems, uh, seems appealing, but again, continue to embrace spiritual community, embrace the church, being knit together in this love, strengthening one another. Well, you're, you're feeling great. You're feeling comforted. You're feeling strengthened. That is awesome. Praise God for it. How can you go strengthen someone else? How can you comfort someone else? And just, just in closing, um, using an example that we all have here in our own church of, of Robin, what an incredible encouragement it was for her to be here last week of simply saying, hey, I feel... Like, I, I want to be at church. And again, it's not great for her to be around a huge group of people. It's not healthy for her to be around groups. But she is so passionately invested in the church and you guys, each and every one of you, because of what that means to her of being knit together in love, unity by the Spirit. This is not something where she's trying to, to check off a simple list of why it's been a little bit, I just have to go. She's been desiring to do it for a long time. This is her family. This is her community. It's everything. And just the incredible encouragement that it is for me to see her appreciating what that means to her to be joined to the body of Christ. Because I think we can often take that for granted of, well, it's there when I need it, as opposed to, man, I always need it. Um, we, we go, any of us go away for a while, and, and it's hard. You haven't, you haven't been around church for a while. You're not around other Christians, and everything you see is completely anti-God. It's anti-Christian. It's everything that goes against the core of who you are. You're grieved by it. It's hard. You know, I can't think about what, how I would be feeling if I were to completely just withdraw for two months, and, and I was never here, or never uh, at a church, or never um, reading the Word of God, or hearing a sermon, or anything like that. Completely withdrawn for two months. Could you imagine that? And so I'm incredibly encouraged and strengthened by, by someone like Robin and seeing that example that we even have here in our own local body. And, and the idea, because I know, you know it, was, it was a time for me of, okay, we're going to need to help and, and strengthen and encourage her. 
and and absolutely. But then how often we get strengthened and encouraged by by seeing her response and and her heart in those situations. And we all have so many examples that we can go to of times where you've been encouraged or strengthened by someone. Things have happened. You need the church, and that's where you go because you know the love that's there. And I just love seeing Paul's heart for the church, and it gets me every time. It was people that he has never met, people he didn't ever know, but he loved them. Why? Because Christ loved the church, and because he's the one who gave up his life for it. And that was good enough for Paul. Uh, if it's good enough for Paul and good enough for Christ, I think it'll be good enough for me. It'd be pretty arrogant to say otherwise. Um, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for forgiving your church. We thank you for the love that you've, that you've shown. We thank you that we thank you that you sent your son and giving up his own life and you, to the point of, of shedding blood on the cross for, for our redemption and, and for, the, for the church. We thank you that, that you've made it so clear in your word that that we're to have a love for one another. And as we look, just even in these two simple, simple verses, seeing that, that it's by your spirit and by your work that our hearts can be comforted and strengthened, that, our, that even our, what it is that we know to be true, that we receive it through your word and that that would inform the way that, that we respond and that we have emotions. And God, I, I do thank you for the emotions that, you, that you've given to us. We thank you that that we're able to respond in accordance with your truth. And God, I pray that, that we would let your word and your truth, your divine truth, be the driving force of our lives, not the, not the emotions that may be passing, but that they would be incredibly informed by what we know to be true. Father, we thank you that in times of, of anxiety, we can look to your word and know that we need not be anxious, that you are in control. In times of fear, we can be reminded that that perfect love casts out fear and that, and that, there's, that there's love in you and, and there is no fear in death, that there is no condemnation, God. These things that, that our emotions can tie us up in, we thank you that, that your truth dispels these things and, and returns us with emotions and, and a heart full of praise and of joy and being able to praise you for that truth. Father, we thank you for, for giving us wisdom and giving understanding and we thank you that You've given gifts to your church. You've given your spirit to your church to be able to build one another up and to continue to grow and to be able to be strengthened in you. And we ask that you would continue to do this, and, and we have assurance that you will. But we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.